Hello, and welcome back to the FrameLab podcast. Hey, George. Hi, Gil. How you doing? I'm doing okay. Um, so, George, we've been talking a bit here in the past couple of weeks. America has a gun disease. Once again, we have a mass killing of young people in a school. Once again, the weapon is a semi-automatic rifle, an AR-15, a machine that's designed to kill as many people as possible in a short period of time. Uh, once again, the Republican Party, which often seems like a wholly owned subsidiary of the gun manufacturers, is sticking to its guns, literally. Um, once again, they're shooting down any kind of meaningful action on gun control. And it, it doesn't seem like there's any amount of carnage or slaughter uh, that's enough for them to actually act. And at this point, it almost seems as if mass killings are not a bug of Republican gun policy, but instead its main feature. Um at the same time, we've seen the young students of uh, uh, Douglas Stoneman High School rise up and become major voices on this issue. They've framed the issue in terms of the right to live life without being massacred by a person with a weapon of war. They've been unyielding in their demand for serious reform now, and they're not following the polls. They're out there trying to change minds. Um, popular corporations have been abandoning the NRA left and right as the boycott NRA movement spreads like wildfire. And even Donald Trump said it was time for action on guns, although he appears to be too weak or disinterested or distracted to carry out on those words, as we could have all expected. At the same time, in terms of popular opinion, it seems like a major pivot point uh, on guns in America. And a lot of our readers and listeners have been asking for your thoughts on this, George. So why do Republicans love guns so much? Well, we've discussed the uh, stickfather moral hierarchy before, the uh, God above man, man above uh, nature, and the strong above the weak, and that's right there, uh, that part. Guns are seen as making you stronger. If you're a weak person and you've got a gun, then you're stronger than being a weak person without a gun, so they believe. And that is an assumption that is here. It's not necessarily true, but it's part of, of the whole idea of the strong above the weak and that you have a responsibility to be strong. Uh, and uh, therefore, it's almost a responsibility to have guns. And this uh, is, you know, um, one of the reasons that you get Republicans doing this. If you say, why Republicans? Why conservatives? That's why. It seems like fear has a lot to do with it. And if you look at the past uh, few years, a lot of the right-wing conspiracy theories have to do with this great fear of some kind of big takeover, of, of a need to be armed and ready for anything to happen to protect yourself against uh, you know, what they see as some kind of government takeover. And at the same time, a lot of the Republican talking points seem to sort of match up with what should, what should be a conspiracy theory. Uh, is this fear essential to keeping Republicans in line and to um, kind of perpetuating their, their strict father ideology? It seems pretty extreme to feel that you need to have a, an assault 
weapon or a weapon of war in your home in order to feel safe? Well, part of it has to do with uh, an attitude toward the government. Uh, the government isn't seen as the public. It's seen as an alien force, as uh, Ronald Reagan described it. Uh, and uh, if you have strict father morality, you might very well see it, uh, that a government that is of, by, and for the people is not going to have the same views as you have. Um, that is, people who are progressive uh, had a different view of pre President Obama than people who are conservative who felt they were oppressed by President Obama uh, because the government, therefore, there uh, under Obama was not uh, uh, following the policies they thought should be, should be followed, and therefore they felt oppressed and, and fearful. Uh, one of the interesting things about this is what uh, President Trump said about guns. He said, we should just go in and take them uh, and do due process later, which, of course, is uh, exactly the things that uh, conservatives are afraid of, uh, that the gun owners are afraid of. Uh, interesting that he should say that. Not not interesting that he should want due process later. But uh, the, um, the you know what that is going to do and the effect it's going to have is just reinforcing uh, the fear of gun owners uh, that the government is going to come in and take their guns. So that is is part of it, and therefore that uh, they will be weak and not strong. At the same time, it seems like maybe the majority of Americans are more worried about somebody with a, a gun, with a weapon of war, coming to take away their children or their family members in a massacre. You know, So if we can understand the Republican um, addiction to assault rifles and semi-automatic semi weapons and guns um, as a strict father um, sort of idea, then... Uh, what is there no way that a strict father mentality person wants to why, why would you love your guns more than you love your children because it doesn't arise in that uh, worldview uh, there can't be a contradiction it's not there it's not in the worldview uh, it's you are seen as having to protect your children to do that you need your gun and you see, you're seen as protecting, and not only that, you see, you see teachers as um, protecting children, and therefore they need guns too, if they're going to be strong, and so on. So what you have is um, something that is doubly terrible, and uh, it's coming from the same place. There's also this idea out there. Um, I just want to get through some of these Republican ideas first, so we can get on to. Um, how, how progressives and, and people with a, a um, humanitarian morality uh, should view the issue. Um, there's this idea that, that gun ownership is enshrined in the Constitution um, as an inviolable right. And that's not exactly the case, though, if you read the Second Amendment. Well, first of all, the Second Amendment was written uh, at a time uh, when there uh, – was an issue of the British coming back and uh, taking over, or and you wanted to have um, what what are called well organized militias, uh, basically um, run by the state, uh, by uh, the United States, uh, to protect uh, the um, the new republic that uh, had been established. At the time, um, arms meant muskets, 
and muskets were not quite as dangerous as AR-15s. Uh, arms meant something really different. Uh, a well-regulated militia uh, was, um, you know, something like the National Guard at the time, uh, under under control of one of the United States. Uh, totally different from anything today, and controlling, uh, you know, um, who had the muskets. Uh, very, very different idea than anything that's present, because the concept of arms has changed dramatically over time. Uh, but in addition to that, um, the Scalia court uh, gave uh, an ungrammatical reading, what Jeffrey Tubin called ungrammatical, and I agree. Uh, there's been a uh, terrific article by Karen Sullivan uh, on the history of the grammar of the um, Second Amendment and the use of the word being in that, uh, which shows that the Scalia version uh, was ungrammatical when it was written and ungrammatical now, and that it was Scalia's attempt to impose his view uh, on the Second Amendment. Uh, and the Second Amendment was seen not as giving individual rights before Scalia's decision in the Heller case. Now, uh, since then, uh, the Heller case did not say that there were no constraints on guns. That very much allows you, it just says, look, you know, you can't have bazookas, you can't have tanks, you can't have nuclear weapons or jet fighter planes in, uh, in the individual control. And uh, similarly, uh, you can have constraints on uh, machine guns and AR-15s if Congress uh, votes in those constraints. So uh, the Second Amendment does not give constitutional rights to own semi-automatic weapons. It's just not there, even under the Scalia interpretation. And it doesn't prevent the government from actually putting in protections for most people um, in terms of regulating what kind of weapon can be owned. I think that's one of the major points that the, the gun crowd always clings to is this idea that this is a constitutional Right. And uh, what's interesting to me is I've seen some talking points from some groups we would agree with, gun groups, uh, anti-gun violence groups, and they often tell people not to talk about the Second Amendment and not to challenge the uh, gun groups, the NRA's interpretation of that, which I think is very strange because if you look at how the NRA was finally able to get this ungrammatical decision in the Heller case, it was after decades and decades of fighting to frame gun ownership as uh, this sacred right. And finally, after decades, they were able to get, uh, you know, through all of their political machinations and getting in uh, presidents who would appoint conservative justices, they were finally able to get the law shaped in their favor. And so it seems strange to me, and again, shows one of those deficits on the progressive and democratic side in framing, that you should, uh, when the issue of the Second Amendment comes up that you should just accept the NRA's frame and not argue back. Uh, it seems like a very strange thing to me. I'm, I'm a gun owner, gun owner myself, and I don't believe the Constitution guarantees me the right to own a semi-automatic weapon. I think that I can own a semi-automatic weapon because of lax regulation and because of an ungrammatical loophole um, that was put there by the Scalia court in the Heller case. Um, so I think it, that's something we need to think about some more in terms of this. They always tie it back 
to these very original American concepts. You know, the Republicans and the right wing love to harken back to the founding fathers and the Tea Party, the Boston Tea Party. They're always looking for their um, their excuses in American history. And so I want to go through some of the frames that we had identified as being the main frames that the NRA manipulates when it talks about guns. Well, before we get there, uh, there is something to be said about the use of the words Second Amendment. Uh, Anything that is an Nth Amendment refers to the Constitution, and the Constitution is taken as if it were given by God, Uh, as if it's a, you know, uh, uh, a right period. And the Second Amendment is also a shorthand uh, on the right for uh, owning, uh, owning guns. So as soon as you mention Second Amendment, it says you have, um, you know, a constitutional right to own guns. That's what the words have come to mean. Mm-hmm. Now, if you were to say the Scalia interpretation uh, of, uh, you know, the Scalia interpretation of well-armed militia or well-regulated militia, you know, that's different. Uh, if you call it a Scalia interpretation, and Scalia was not supposed to be giving interpretations. He said he was not doing interpreting at all when he was. The Scalia interpretation says something really different. It says this was a right-wing justice's uh, interpretation. Uh, And you might also call it the right-wing interpretation. You know, uh, he gave it the NRA interpretation. And it's very important to say it's an interpretation. It's not just part of the Constitution. And, you know, that uh, as soon as you say, just say Second Amendment and you use those terms, uh, you are immediately evoking the NRA frame. So there is a reason to say something different. The question is, what do you say that's different? And what you have to say is that this was a right-wing interpretation. Or is there a mass-killing loophole? It's been created by a right-wing interpretation. That's correct. It is a mass-killing loophole. It is, you know, a, a killer machine, killing machine loophole. And that's that's crucial, a mass-killing loophole uh, at, created by a right-wing interpretation, which had to do with uh, NRA lobbying and the NRA lobbying interpretation. This is um, important to say the truth, the historical truth about uh uh, the current situation that we're in. Definitely. And speaking of the NRA, they've been putting out some really um, awful propaganda recently. We watched a few of those videos mm-hmm. earlier this week. It seems like they're doing everything they can to seem totally evil. I mean, you know, you have Dana Lesh dressed all in black, um, you know, holding an hourglass, speaking in ominous tones, almost attempting to foment some sort of revolt, um, really doing everything she can to stir up a very polarizing enmity um, between Americans on the issue of guns. But there are also some words that, that and concepts that pop out whenever you look at any kind of NRA propaganda material. And one of the frames and concepts they're very good at manipulating in their favor is freedom. What does freedom mean to them? Well, let's start with Dana Lesh. Uh, One of the things she kept repeating was that the NRA has membership 
and she says 5 million people. Uh, in a nation of 323 million people, that's less than 1 60th of the population. That's a tiny proportion of the population, less than 2%. Now, if she said um, our supporters are less than 2% of the population, that wouldn't sound like a lot. She says 5 million, that sounds like a lot. And the fact is they have less than 2% of the population supporting them. And uh, that is important uh, because one number sounds like a lot and the other number sounds like almost nothing. And that uh, is, again, a matter of framing. You know, uh, if you're going to frame the size of the NRA, you say it has almost no support. Almost no support, less than 2% of the population. You know, and that is uh, something that uh, you have to watch. Dana Lesh is good at framing. She framed that the best she could. And then she, what she said was, that is the people. She said their membership was the people. But it's not the people. Any poll shows that the people are opposed to the NRA's position. It's, uh, you know, and so you want to say it's an anti-American view uh, by every poll. And it's important to say that to say that the NRA position is anti-American, as shown by every poll. Uh, and this is something that people can say, and the Democrats don't. They'll use the term Second Amendment again, they'll use their, their right-wing terms, and they don't come out and say the, you know, what the numbers show. It's important to say what the numbers show. Uh, in addition to that, as you pointed out, the NRA talks about freedom. Now, there's an essential property of freedom. Freedom in America is for everyone. It's not just freedom from for some and not freedom for others. It's there for everyone, and that has a consequence, which is that you are not free to take away the freedom of others. Very crucial, since freedom is for everyone. For example, if you're, you are free to walk down the street, you're not free to go and knock people down and keep them from walking down the street or from tying them up or putting them in chains or whatever to keep them from walking down the street. You're not free to take away freedom because freedom is there for everyone, right? But part of freedom means being free to uh, go to school and be safe for children. It's freedom for um, parents, to not fear, freedom from fear, as Roosevelt said. Freedom from the fear that your children are going to be murdered in their schools. Freedom from fear of gun violence. That is a crucial thing. There is no freedom to create the fear. There is no freedom to um, make machines and sell machines that will create mass murder. There's no freedom to promote mass murder. And that is really crucial. There's no freedom to make or sell or purchase machines whose only purpose is to kill a lot of people. I mean, they have no, has no other purpose. It's not a hunting purpose. It's not any other reasonable purpose that you can have than to kill a lot of people. That Having that purpose is uh, and that goal, which is carried out, and it's been carried out all too often, and is still a threat, that uh, imposes on the freedom of others. 
So it is wrong, false to say that you are that uh, you know the NRA supports freedom. There is no such freedom to you know sponsor the sale and uh, possession of um, mass murder machines. If you love your children, if you love your life, if you love your ability to walk down the street without being mowed down by a weapon of war, then you have to view the NRA as an anti-freedom organization. Freedom for a very small, tiny percentage of the population that is completely obsessed with gun ownership and unable to uh, live uh, um, without fear uh, unless they're armed with guns. Even to say freedom for a small number of people is not true of what freedom means in this country. It's not freedom. It is the imposition on the freedom of others, which is not freedom because freedom has to do has to be freedom for all. And, and we were talking about this earlier. Nobody dies because they don't own an AR-15. People die because one person does own an AR-15. The very thing that in the strict father conservative moral view gives you power over others is giving you the power to take away the freedom of many, many other people. Uh, immediately for no reason with the mm -hmm. uh, with the pull of a trigger finger and so there's an imbalance there when when the the way that the NRA defiles the concept of freedom is um, betrayed by what we see in the papers and on the news all too often when many young people and many many people in general lose their lives because of these weapons so so it's uh, anti-freedom I guess is what you're saying there, there's no argument for freedom on the NRA side. Right, exactly. That brings us to the this the second um, concept here that they use to frame many of their arguments. Uh, this idea of individual rights, the idea that it's your personal job with a gun to protect your own freedom and that there is no such thing as a social responsibility to uh, protect people at large through the government or through the public from um, any threats. So this idea of individual rights versus social responsibility. Very important idea to talk about what it means to have a right. Any right that you have implies a responsibility either on your part or on the part of others to guarantee that right. We have inalienable rights of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. That means that others in our, in our society have a responsibility to guarantee that right, a responsibility that we, we can guarantee life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And being shot and killed with an AR-15 violates that right. That is, the very act of creating um, killing machines that result in mass murder takes away the right of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And that means that the society is not following up on its responsibility to guarantee that right. We have a responsibility, all of us, to do everything we can to guarantee that right. And one of the things we can do is make sure that the killing machines are not possessed, sold, uh, or bought. The uh, third piece of the argument they make 
is that this is about mentally ill people, mm. right? And we can't punish everybody collectively because a few mentally ill people um, do something bad. And I know you have some pretty strong and uh, well-developed thoughts on, on this particular argument. Well, um, mental illness uh, is something that is described by the psychiatric community. Uh, there is a uh, DSM-5, uh, which lists uh, lots and lots of forms. It's a thick book of all the forms of mental illness. And uh, the uh, real reason why the mass murderers murder is not listed in most cases in DSM-5 as mental illness. And let's think about some of those reasons that are not mental illness. Uh, some people are offended by what other people say and do. Road rage has to do with being offended when someone cuts in, you know, passes you on the right and cuts in in front of you and so on. Uh, you get angry when uh, somebody offends you in some way. Uh, now, you can be offended, for example, by in high school by being excluded by, uh, you know, certain uh, groups or a majority of other students, and you'll feel offended. And you may feel angry. I've studied anger and the logic of anger in great detail. The logic of anger contains within it the idea of retributive justice. That is, you get angry, and uh, part of being angry is one, uh, wanting to get even, is wanting to have somebody else pay for, you know, uh, doing whatever it was that offended you and made you angry. That is not a form of mental illness. It's a form of normal emotion. It is there whenever anybody gets angry. Getting angry is not a form of mental illness. It is part of normal emotions, as those who study emotions say. I'm a, a member of the International Society for the Study of Emotions. Uh, you know, anger is number one on that list of emotions, right there. Uh, and uh, not mental illness. Uh, similarly, wanting to get even, even for offenses are, is not a form of mental illness. Simply the desire is not a form of mental illness. The question of um, losing your temper, losing your temper and control and yelling or screaming at somebody or starting a fight, that's not a form of mental illness. Normal people lose their temper every now and then, sometimes a lot. Uh, normal people will scream at other people now and then a lot when they lose their temper. So losing control in ordinary situations uh, such as being offended by someone, for example, or being discriminated against by someone, is seen as normal. Then there are hatreds. There is prejudice. We've seen murders, mass murders, from people who hated African Americans, for example, as in a certain church shooting we've seen. Uh, hatred is not a form of mental illness. Hatred is despicable, awful, etc., but it is not mental illness. A lot of people hate, and hate people of other ethnicities, hate people of other races, hate people uh, of political views, all sorts of things. You can hate lots of things, 
You can even hate signs of food. But hatred is not a form of mental illness in normal, in normal hatred. But you've seen mass murder when people who hate have access to weapons of mass destruction, weapons of mass murder. So what happens in most of these cases is that uh, behavior, well, such as loss of control, loss of your temper, uh, being offended, wanting retribution, uh, being angry, all of these things which have nothing to do with mental illness per se, uh, all of those things are contributory factors in mass murder when there is access to a, a weapon of mass murder. If there is no access to a weapon of mass murder, then somebody will lose control and start yelling or start a fistfight or something like that, but there won't be mass murder. There's only mass murder when these normal extreme boundaries are, you know, happen, which happen all the time, are accompanied by access to a weapon of mass murder. That's why we should ban the weapons of mass murder. And to be clear, this is these are people taking what are within the range of normal human emotions to great extremes. But your argument is that there's a statistical probabil probability that if people have access to weapons of mass murder, they will act out in this way. They will continue to wreak this kind of havoc and destruction in our society. Sure. Uh, think of it this way. There are 323 million people in America. Uh, how many people have those emotions? How many people have them even in extreme enough form to start a fistfight or start yelling and lose control? Okay. Uh, you know, certainly, probably half, let's say if it's only 20%, 20% of 323 million is like over 60 million people, right? If only like 10% uh, of those uh, will go to an extreme, that would be 6 million people. If it's only 1%, that's still uh, 600,000 people. Let's suppose it's, you know, 1% of 20% of the population of America having such extreme versions of normal emotions. Okay? That's 600,000 people. How many guns are there in America per 100? Answer, 88 guns in America per 100, one, 100 people. That would be 500,000 guns out there. A lot of guns. How many people own AR-15s in America? The answer is 5 million people own AR-15s. Now, start thinking of the probabilities of some, somebody who has access to or owns an AR-15 uh, committing mass murder given ordinary account, uh, occurrences of such cases. And all of a sudden, you get a pretty high probability that there's going to be mass murders continuing. The fourth part of the argument we identified, and if anybody else has other parts of it, we'd love to hear from them in the comments, and we might talk about them in a later show. Um, safety and protection. To the NRA member, this means you're only safe if you have a gun. You have to protect everything you have with guns. But what is... What do safety and protection mean to most Americans? Safety and protection has to do with living your ordinary life. 
being safe. Being safe means you don't have to be afraid. Being safe means you're free from fear. Being safe means you're not in an armed camp. If you're in an armed camp, you know, uh, what is called a hardened situation where everybody has guns, the chances of the guns being used make you less safe. If people don't have access to, to such weapons, then you are safer. You're not going to be killed by them. So the idea of safety has to do with the lack of these, these things. It's only if you assume that everybody is or should be armed and you say you should be armed, you know, too, that you say, oh, you're safer. You know, the, you know what, what do you do about a bad guy with a gun? You need a good guy with a gun. That is utter nonsense, especially when you apply it to teachers and you want teachers to have guns. Uh, teachers, even if they take lessons in shooting, are not going to be as good at shooting weapons as, say, New York policemen who are trained to shoot. New York policemen are known to miss, in ordinary, even target practice, two-thirds of the time. In gun battles, they miss seven-eighths of the time. They hit one out of eight times they shoot. Now, what about those other seven times or those other, you know, two-thirds? The answer is that New York policemen are sued because they hit civilians those times, and the police spend hundreds of millions of dollars in dealing with such lawsuits for good reason, because the police miss. Now, if the police miss uh, that often, chances are that teachers who are not as well trained as New York police are going to miss at least as much. When they miss in a gun battle seven out of eight times or, or two out of three times in normal, just normal practice, who are they going to hit? If they're in a school, who's around? Answer, students. They're going to hit their own students. They're going to kill their own students. This is not sane. Not to mention the fact that the police also shoot a lot of people deliberately and wrongfully. And if you also arm teachers, how many young people will be shot when uh, and killed uh, when that was n never supposed to be within the appropriate range of responses from a teacher, right? You see a lot of wrongful death, especially among uh, young, young men of color uh, at the hands of police. And if you also have teachers carrying guns, um, uh, you know, then you have the same problem. Maybe, maybe that's, that's a, a probability or a situation that obviously conservatives, gun-loving conservatives are prepared to accept. But in a way, the entire debate about arming teachers is really uh, a diversion from what the focus should be, right? But it's interesting to me because it's not just in terms of guns, um, where the problem is clearly guns, mass killing weapons, what our policy toward mass killing and massacres should be, how do we protect people from massacres and mass killings by weapons of war, right? The Republicans want to make it about everything else, about mental health, about the Constitution, you name it. Um, but on almost every level, if you look at the Republican and conservative arguments, um, whenever there's something that's causing a great social harm that's, that's really harmful to the interests of, of majority of people, 
that it kills people, harms their health, or hurts them. The Republican argument always seems to be in favor of the harm. And it works that way with, uh, with fossil fuels. You know, fossil fuels are destroying the planet. The GOP wants more fossil fuels. Uh, economic inequality, destroying our society and our economy. And the Republicans pass a tax bill to rapidly um, increase extreme economic inequality. Guns are killing our children and our parents and our grandparents um, on a regular basis in big massacres, not to mention daily murders on the streets of every big city in America. And the GOP says more guns, more guns in schools, more guns in churches, more guns everywhere. Um, Why are they always arguing for the most harm? And I would also note that in every single instance here, what is harmful to the majority of people is beneficial to corporations. That's exactly right. Uh, In the uh, conservative worldview, and the the GOP is largely conservative and run by conservatives, conservative worldview is a strict father worldview. There is a moral hierarchy, and in there you have the rich above the poor, the employers above the employees, which says corporations. It says that uh, corporate leads to laissez-faire capitalism, not responsible capitalism, not capitalism that is um, responsible to um, uh, um, its stakeholders, the community, people in their community, to their employees, to their customers, etc. But rather, laissez-faire capitalism says uh, that uh, every corporation has a, quote, fiduciary responsibility to make as much money as possible, which can mean polluting the environment, which can mean um, making products that poison their customers and poison uh, people in in communities. Uh, That is, very often what will happen is that in order to make more profit, they will harm people. And its uh, harm doesn't matter as much as profit in these cases. That follows from the rich above the poor and employers above employees. It's a consequence of the conservative moral hierarchy, the conservative idea that uh, whoever the winners are, they uh, deserve to win over the losers, and that the losers, as our president says, are losers. Uh, Namely, they're people who deserve to lose. And that is part of the conservative worldview. Uh, As long as that is part of the conservative worldview, then the issue of profit versus harm will always come out in favor of profit. Another part of the conservative moral worldview is adults over children. And maybe that explains why Republicans don't really care about a bunch of kids getting killed in in mass shootings. Um, But something interesting has happened in the aftermath of the shooting in Florida. Uh, The students of this high school have been speaking out with very loud, clear, moral voices. They've been demanding change. Um, There's a national school walkout plan for March 24th, um, the March for Our Lives, and students are demanding action to protect public safety from these massacre mass killing weapons. Um, They're demanding to feel safe, not only in schools, but in malls, in churches, at concerts, in public. Basically, they're demanding to be safe in America. 
Um, and so that's been one of the very positive developments out of this is that these young people are using their voices. And I think they have some pretty powerful framing almost naturally, maybe because they haven't been tainted by um, our politics yet, that they're speaking with a very clear uh, moral voice. They've also been studying American history and the Constitution and the origins of our country. So maybe they're kind of a little more naturally progressive than the, their democratic leaders who are a few decades ahead of them. But I know you've been listening and watching carefully to what these young students have been saying. What can adults learn from the voices of these young people? A great deal. Uh, but let me start with the words of uh, Michael Steele, who used to be head of the Republican National Committee. Uh, he said, uh, I know many Republican legislators, senators, representatives, who have shot AR-15s. I don't know of any who have ever been on the other side, who have ever been shot at by AR-15s. These students have been on the other side. They know what that means. They have empathy for those who, when they identify with, those who are shot at, not, that, not by those who shoot. Uh, that is a very telling thing about this, about Republican and Republican legislators. Uh, but also, uh, it says that as soon as you are in the position of being shot at and seeing your fellows, fellow students killed, what that does is raise in you empathy for everybody. And what these students have done is take the fact that they know stuff. They've been educated. They've studied the Constitution. Uh, a lot of Republican legislation in various states is against teaching civics. In Texas, the textbooks have to take out uh, certain truths of American history and drop them out because of Republican legislators. Uh, Texas has sells more textbooks than anybody else, and a lot of the textbook publishers have had to change their textbooks uh, in order to sell them in Texas. Uh, the idea of Republicans not putting the truth in their books, in their textbooks, is important. These students have studied the Constitution, they've studied civics, they've studied law, and when you listen to them, you find out that they've learned something. We know that people who are 18 uh, can serve in the Army. What we're now learning is that people who are 18, who've studied, done their homework in high school, are able to say what needs to be done legally in America. They're able to function as citizens. And that is important. These are your ideal citizens. They're speaking out as ideal citizens. They're not afraid. They've been, uh, they've been on the other side of the AR-15s. They're not afraid to speak out against it, and they are leading the rest of us. That is, uh, for many people, uh, the so-called Second Amendment has been seen as the third rail of politics, even by Democrats. Uh, there have been people in the Democratic Party who've said, "Don't go! Don't mention anything about the Second Amendment. Don't uh, you know? Bring up guns, etc." These high school students are teaching us what we should have learned long ago. 
Do you think there's a way to reach some Republicans on the gun issue? Um, we have seen some people in the aftermath of the shooting in Parkland, um, AR-15 owners, military veterans, uh, some of them you know, sawing their guns in half, um, really taking a big public stand against against these weapons. Do you think that's something that, that can continue to grow, or do you think there's a natural impediment to many conservatives um, seeing the value of, of treasuring the lives of uh, and the freedom uh, of every American to live their life without fear of gun massacre over this attachment to uh, weapons of war? I think there's a very real possibility uh, that video uh, made by the owner of an AR-15. He set up his own video camera, uh, and he held up his AR-15, turned around, went to a metal saw behind him, and sawed the AR-15 in half, came back and showed you the two parts, and said, I'm never going to use this, and no one else should. Now, he's a Republican. He owned the AR-15, he said, no. Why? One of the things that we've noticed is that a lot of people in conservative communities have what we call in-group nurturance or in-group care. That is, they care about the people in their churches. They care about the people uh, in their neighborhoods. They care about the people in their conservative communities. At, not at the level uh, that Democrats have where there's policies and the government and uh, programs, but rather at the level of what happens to individuals. Here's a guy who had an AR-15 who is thinking about the students in his community, who is thinking about the people he knows. Uh, his children, his grandchildren, the grandchildren and children of his neighbors He's thinking about them as people in his community, and he saws in half his AR-15. I think that there is a major possibility if we approach conservative communities from the point of view of the people in their churches, uh, the children of the people in their churches, the people, people they know who are their neighbors, the, the children they see down the block, that is, they um, uh, are, if they think of them not as, you know, people away from them, as not in their tribe, in the, in the sense of tribalism, I, I don't know if that's the appropriate term, but not, not as people uh, that are foreign to them, but as people that they know, there is a real possibility of getting uh, Republican support. In the meantime, there are some things people can do to hold Republicans accountable and defeat the NRA. Uh, Scott Gerber, who's the former communications director for Senator Dianne Feinstein and a friend of mine, wrote an op-ed in the San Francisco Chronicle recently where he laid out six points of action people can take to defeat the NRA. I'm going to read them briefly here and, and get your thoughts after each one if, if, if you have something to add. Uh, step number one to beat the NRA Call or write your congressional representatives and tell them that enough is enough. Support the ban on bump stocks, approve a permanent assault weapons ban, and make sure that every purchase of guns goes through a background check every time. 
tell them to take the hands off the handcuff the handcuffs off the ATF and the CDC because those agencies should be allowed to do research on effective ways to stop gun violence. Number two, support the boycott NRA movement. Pressure big corporations to stop being in bed with the NRA. And already we've seen some companies like United, Best Western, and Dick Sporting Goods act. Um, support advocates for common sense gun safety measures like Every Town for Gun Safety and the Brady Campaign because these organizations are on the front lines and they are hugely outspent by the NRA every year. Don't support candidates financially or otherwise unless they support ending gun violence. Uh, there was one re big Republican donor, Al Hoffman Jr., who already said he would no longer support um, Republicans who don't support ending gun violence, and all of us should do the same. Uh, go to Washington, D.C. on March 24th for the March for Our Lives or find a local event to support and the final point there is vote. There are those are all excellent. Um, one problem with it is that people may not know what to do. They may not know what organizations are effective against gun violence and which organizations to join or support. Um, they may not know even about the March twenty fourth event uh, and what events there are locally. That means that announcements are necessary. Communication about all of these things are necessary. Uh, those are excellent points, but again, uh, the idea of communicating about them is crucial. Uh, that's why we do these podcasts, but uh, those who listen to them need to be able to get those the word out on all of those things. Uh, they need to be able to get Scott Gerber's six points and to be able to get more information about them and to spread that information. Uh, communication is crucial in all of these issues. Uh, Scott is absolutely right. And voting is crucial. There are many people who don't vote. Right now, uh, we find that there are people who uh, may support all of these views that we're talking about, but who haven't voted because of one thing or another. Um, maybe there's some positions that uh, they don't like of local candidates or they're not informed or whatever. But the re tre reality of this is that everyone does vote, either at the polls or otherwise. If you vote at the polls, you can vote for what you believe in, for what you think is right. If you don't vote, you're voting against what you believe in. You're giving half a vote to the other side and those votes half votes add up the fact is whenever you don't vote you're voting against what you believe in think about it do you want to vote against what you believe in do you want to vote against yourself now we'll go to some Q&A from our from your readers on Facebook um, we have a few questions some are about guns others are um, on a couple of other topics. So I'll start with one from Maurice Ann Woodruff. She asks, is the NRA becoming a political party? It's not a political party by no means. It has five million members. That's not enough to do anything as a political party. What it does have is five million members who are very active. Uh, most of the money spent by the NRA is not for candidates. 
It's for education and for get out the you know get their people out there uh, supporting candidates and going to the polls and knocking on doors and talking to their neighbors and so on. It is for activating their membership. And what that means is that the people who are against the NRA need to be just as active. It's extremely important to think that the NRA is just not just sitting there and that there are 5 million members and they're just sitting at home uh, being 1 60th of the population. They're out there being active. And that if you don't want the NRA uh, in charge of, uh, you know, the ability to kill people, if you don't want the NRA influencing our politics as much as it does, you have to be active out there influencing people. You have to be as active as the people in the NRA who are NRA members. And that's important. That's what citizenship is about. Citizenship is not just going out to an election now and then. Uh, citizenship is not just maybe reading the papers or watching the news uh, and maybe talking about it uh, uh, you know, when you have coffee with your friends or something. Citizenship is active. Citizenship says take what is right, what you understand as being right, not wrong in this society, uh, notice it, and then act on it. Don't just notice it and sit there. What does act on it means? All the things that Scott Gerber said, you know. Uh, talk to your elected officials. Talk to your friends and neighbors. Uh, communicate with them. Uh, make sure that you vote. Talk, make sure you tell other people who may not be voting or may not have voted that they do vote against what they believe by not voting. You have to actually be a citizen. Politics is not uh, some dirty thing that you don't want to touch. Politics is our life. Politics is suffuses all of everything that we do every day. It's not something apart from you. It means being a citizen. Our Constitution, when it says it gives us certain rights, those rights are to be exercised. That's what it means to be a citizen. Now we have a question from Jin Howell. How about those who are saying the teenagers who are demanding gun reform are being paid? How can we counter that? I'll just answer this one off the bat. Don't. Don't take the bait. Don't argue about uh, false accusations. Shift the frame right back to the frame you want to argue about, the need for freedom to not be massacred, uh, the need for politicians in Washington to respect your right to not be mowed down by a weapon of mass killing in a public place. The moment you start using the terms that these uh, you know, uh, right-wing zealots are using to attack these young students, um, you're losing. Talk about how they're attacking the students, but don't repeat what they're saying about them. That, that, that just created an entire narrative that millions and millions of people were exposed to largely because everyone was so busy repeating these horrible, horrible false accusations. If you take the names of the students who are named as, you know, being uh, other things uh, than just students, what you do is repeat their names as students, as people who uh, have seen their fellow students mowed down. Uh, repeat them as students. Repeat the positives 
and say those positives out loud. Yeah, these were victims of a of a massacre, and um, the whole purpose of labeling them as something other than that is meant to undermine their credibility and their humanity. And one way you spread that disease is by uh, taking the bait, the, the, the desire to immediately react to something extreme and crazy is something that if you're interested in framing, you have to learn to identify and to counteract through other, other means. Um, here's a question that's not about guns. It's from Tiffany Landry. I think this one's for you, George. If 98% of our thoughts are subconscious and may have unhealthy natures, can we change them? Can we use conscious effort to change unconscious thoughts? That's a great question, and the answer is yes. Uh, my job uh, for many years as a professor of cognitive science and linguistics was uh, and is in my writing, and it still is today, to make the unconscious conscious. What we're trying to do in these podcasts is exactly that, to make the unconscious understandings conscious. When we talk about the um, conservative moral hierarchy, conservatives don't go around saying, I have this moral hierarchy. It's part of what they automatically do. It's part of the unconscious logic of being a conservative. And uh, it's not when, you know, to... to uh, when we talk about, let's say, Donald Trump as uh, uh, having strategies in his tweets, it doesn't mean that he says, I have this strategy and I'm going to use it. It means that uh, in over 50 years as a salesman, he has found out what sells. That even unconsciously, he knows what to do. He knows how to strategize unconsciously. Our job is to make the unconscious conscious. That's why we do what we do. And once you see the unconscious becoming conscious, you have a job. You have a job to make it conscious for others. Because citizenship has to do with spreading what is needed to be a good citizen. What is needed is understanding, number one. Our job is to promote understanding. And if you come to understand something you didn't understand before, you automatically get a new job for a citizen to spread that understanding. The next question is from Willie Fleetwood. I think Willie's asked a question before. I have a question, but maybe this isn't the right place, but here it goes. Has anyone ever refuted your characterization of the conservative worldview, specifically the hierarchy? Do conservatives accept this characterization? The worldview seems so simple and primitive. Why is this? Well, First, uh, if you ask about consciousness, they're going to say, of course not. The question is, do the, does it work that way? The question is, does it explain what's going on? The explanatory power is enormous. Um, I've been writing things recently about uh, the, um, how Republican legislation can be explained by the, the conservative moral hierarchy how every piece of Republican legislation ever proposed, every conservative piece of Republican legislation has fit some part of that moral hierarchy. That is an amazing generalization. 
that is uh, an amazing confirmation of all that we're saying. What I'm doing is going through the unconscious logic that we see around us all the time. Every time we hear about Republican legislation and we understand that that is the kind of thing Republicans would do, you have to explain why Republicans would do it. This is the best explanation we have at present. I, on social media, have seen a lot of Republicans or conservatives react to the moral hierarchy, but denial has never been one of the reactions I've seen. They attack it for other reasons, or they say, well, the liberals believe the exact opposite. But I have yet to see anyone, including the great Scott Adams, who the conservatives revere as, as a, you know, a master persuader of some kind, uh, refute the conservative moral hierarchy. I don't think they can refute it. I just don't think they're used to seeing it that way. As you said, you make their unconscious conscious. Uh, but when they look at it, they have a hard time disagreeing with it, is my is my sense. I think there are some people with conservative leanings who take exception to things like racism and um, sexism and discrimination. But do they support candidates who support policies that enshrine all of those things? That's the real question. And if you support candidates who support those policies, then you haven't really established much of a difference between yourself and those who adhere to this strict moral hierarchy. Uh, that's exactly right. Uh, I wrote that in the book Moral Politics, which is where the first book that I wrote about this. I've written about it in seven books since. But uh, in the um, uh, when I first wrote about it, I pointed out that there are many conservatives who stop short of the last part. They stop short of the prejudice. There are many conservatives who are not sexists, who are not racists, and so on. Uh, and that, you know, who are not, uh, you know, homophobes. Uh, they stop short of that, and that's important to know. However, as Gil just said, they support uh, candidates who are, who have all those views. Uh, they support a party where all those views are enshrined in legislation. And that's important to recognize. That is, they may stop short themselves of being sexist, racist, and homophobes, but they support a party that doesn't stop short there. They support legislation that doesn't stop short there. They support candidates that don't stop short there. And uh, that is... Um, not a, a pretty reprehensible thing to do, it, you know, even though they personally uh, will, uh, uh, you know, not go that far. Our final question from Jen Wei. When Trump says no collusion or no chaos over and over again, is that helpful for him or is he strengthening those frames? He's strengthening the frames. Go, Donald. Yeah, I think uh, chaotic collusion is sort of a great way to sum up what we're seeing so far out of this president. Well, it's not chaotic collusion at all, I think. I think there's more actual collusion, but that's another story. I leave that to the yeah. special counsel to, to, to point out. Yeah, I think the collusion might be separate from the chaos, but the chaos and the collusion sort of go hand in hand at a certain point. The chaos hides the collusion, and that's how they go hand in hand. The chaos is part of diversion. So if you look at the Trump tweet strategy, which is preemptive framing, 
as trying to frame things as fake news or whatever, uh, frame things, uh, uh, you know, uh, against the truth. Uh, you then also get diversion, that is, when the truth is starting to come out and it's getting too close, you change the topic. And chaos is a good way of changing the topic. Uh, blaming other people, uh, blaming people who you fire or get rid of, or you know, blaming someone else is another way to uh, avoid uh, things that are getting close because that then goes into the news cycle. And saying outrageous things, you know, saying crazy things even to see if you can get away with it. Uh, you know, uh, it's very interesting to hear about the um, the tariff issues where he um, uh, said he was going to have tariffs on steel and aluminum. A reporter asked, what are the numbers? And he just came out, you know, 25% on steel, 10% on aluminum. And then the, the reporters have then asked, uh, where did those numbers come from? Was there any committee that put them out there? Was there even uh, an order, a speech that was written? Uh, was there any um, procedure that came up with those numbers, etc.? And so far, there is no way to say where the numbers came from. It's part of chaos. He said, okay, those numbers, and then he's president, so those are the numbers out there. And then people start calculating the effects on our economy, which are pretty awful. Yeah, and they're talking about tariffs instead of Stormy Daniels. So there's a benefit there yep. as well, though. I'm not sure how long he can keep this up. At a certain point, don't you run out of chaos? No. I think that he has an unlimited capacity for <laughs> chaos. Well, I guess we're going to find out. Uh, that's all for this week. See you next time.